I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Texas two-step is the most popular country dance in the nation. It's two quick steps followed by two slow steps. The Texas two-step bankruptcy is not as popular. It's a controversial legal maneuver that a company can use to manage its exposure to potential legal claims in two steps. First, spin off a unit and transfer tort liability to that unit. And second, put the unit into bankruptcy. Johnson & Johnson tried the Texas two-step to resolve more than 40,000 cancer lawsuits by offloading its liability in the talc litigation to a new entity, LTL Management, which declared bankruptcy three days later. But a federal appeals court stopped the music for J&J, rejecting its bankruptcy bid unanimously in the first major repudiation of the Texas two-step strategy. Joining me is bankruptcy law expert Lindsay Simon, a professor at the University of Georgia Law School. Lindsay, I believe that Georgia Pacific was the first company to try this Texas two-step strategy in 2017. Tell us more about it. Of course. So the Texas two-step is a process by which a company that may have valuable assets but also face some problems. So maybe in the case of Johnson Johnson, litigation exposure, where they want to separate the assets from the liabilities. And so under the Texas two-step, they use a feature of Texas law called the divisive merger statute, where basically they segment off the good from the bad into two separate companies. And the reason that this step matters is under Texas law, when you go through a divisive merger, there is no transfer. And so after you separate out the two companies, one good, one bad, then in the case of defendants like Johnson Johnson, you put the company with all the liabilities into bankruptcy. That's step two. And then use bankruptcy to resolve that liability. Does it seem pretty obvious that the reason the companies are doing this is to try to you know, settle and wall off the mass tort claims? In short, yes. Right. So the only reason you would go through with this mechanism is to create some division between two parts of your company and to streamline where really the liability is. Right. You know all the exposure for litigation is in one entity, and then you put that entity into bankruptcy. One of the benefits of bankruptcy is that it pulls everyone without any real opt-out potential into bankruptcy court. And so it is a collective device, right? It forces everyone into one forum. And so for that reason, it's very powerful. Because again, if you're facing litigation in different courts all around the country, dealing with that can be very expensive, very inefficient, and also can really give a defendant very little leverage to get everyone to a single settlement. Because oftentimes, these different claimants, these different people who are bringing claims, they may want different things. They may not all agree and they may not want to settle now versus later versus something else. So in bankruptcy, 
there is a mandatory table. And so if you as a claimant don't come to the bankruptcy court and try and be part of the negotiation process, a settlement may go forward without you. And so that's a very powerful tool on that, I imagine, is why bankruptcy is so appealing. Now, the Texas two-step itself, that mechanism, there are many other ways to kind of get at the same thing. All sorts of pre-bankruptcy planning lets companies decide where they you know, ship their assets around. The biggest challenge they face is whether once they file for bankruptcy, people will challenge what they've done and say that they were fraudulent transfers. And so the beauty, at least in theory, of the Texas two-step is that you can create these new structures and state law says it's not a transfer. And so in theory, they won't have to worry about it being a fraudulent transfer. And that's why the Texas statute, there's a couple other states, but we've named it after Texas. That's why it's so appealing. Now, again, we really haven't had a court test this and say, well, all the way through and through, the bankruptcy code has a fraudulent transfer provision. And so, you know, we either agree that the state law governs or we say the state law doesn't matter and that transfer under bankruptcy law is a transfer under bankruptcy law. So we don't know for sure whether a, a Texas two-step will, quote, work all the way through a bankruptcy process. We don't have any cases where it's gone all the way through. But at least in theory, that's the argument and that's the appeal. The Third Circuit ruled against J&J over its Texas two-step. Explain the reasoning. The Third Circuit opinion dismissed Johnson & Johnson's bankruptcy case of the entity it actually filed, which is called LTL. So that's one of the entities that was created through the Texas two-step. The reason they dismissed it was that basically the company that filed for bankruptcy didn't show that they had filed it in good faith. And so the the opinion kind of grapples with what's this question of what is good faith when you file for bankruptcy. And they determined under Third Circuit law that a valid bankruptcy purpose, which would satisfy good faith, requires that there be some form of financial distress. And in this case, they looked very closely at the facts. They ignored really the Texas two-step. They didn't touch on any of that. They looked at a company, the debtor, LTL, and said, is this company in financial distress? Is there some sort of immediacy to their need? And is there this question about whether, you know, they have real trouble? And because in creating LTL, Johnson Johnson facilitated this funding agreement whereby everything, basically, up to the level of, you know, 61 some billion dollars would be paid for. And so the Third Circuit looking at this said, you know, this debtor is facing liability, clearly, right? And there's nothing that says you have to be completely insolvent, but there has to be some sort of financial distress. And given all the promise of funding, we really don't see anything on these facts that says today, LTL has any risk anytime soon of not being able to pay everything as it comes due. And that's not good enough to justify filing for bankruptcy. Yeah, the court compared the funding backstop to an ATM disguised as a contract. Did it leave anything open? Or, you know, as far as the Third Circuit is concerned, is this J&J attempt dead in the water? So just generally... I think the court was very clear that it's not saying mass tort cases can't use bankruptcy in any circuit. It's also not saying that it's possible where even defendants with plenty of money might satisfy that financial distress test. But they did say effectively for a debtor like this, like LTL, that is going to have really every bit of its finances taken care of for the foreseeable future, that's not going to be enough. So I don't think it is going to shut the door on any mass tort case, 
I do think it will have an impact on very well-resourced, big-name companies using the two sets to create a company and then putting it into bankruptcy while also paying for everything. I just think that model is going to be a lot less appealing to companies weighing their options. Because again, you know, Johnson Johnson has gone through this whole process and now they're to some degree back where they started not that long ago. And now the precedent is harder. So will future cases test in the third circuit exactly where the line of financial distress is? I imagine at some point, yes. But I think if you're weighing your strategic options, bankruptcy is not off the table. I'm not sure bankruptcy in the third circuit exactly like this is something I would chance. But there are three Texas two-step bankruptcies similar to J&J's winding their way through the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Western District of North Carolina, which is in the Fourth Circuit. Absolutely. So there's a number of mass tort cases, in particular dealing with asbestos liability, where the large you know, solvent parent has put a smaller entity, sometimes created for the purpose of filing bankruptcy, into bankruptcy. And so far, at least at the lower courts level, that tactic has not been thwarted on a motion to dismiss. So parties have tried to get the case dismissed, and at least in current decisions, the court has said, no, you know, this is not a bad faith filing. This decision can stand. But the Third Circuit is the first circuit to deal with this issue. None of the cases pending in the Fourth Circuit have gone up to the appellate level. Uh, and again, this issue is also percolating in the Seventh Circuit, where the 3M Arrow case is pending. Uh, and that recently, whether or not that case was filed in good faith, is also an issue before the court at the lower level. So the Third Circuit is really the first to directly address this flavor of case. I imagine it won't be the last. Are these cases very fact-specific? Because on the surface... It seems like, you know, it's a big company separating off another unit to go into bankruptcy, and it seems like they would have a lot of the same legal problems. Well, interestingly, the reason that it didn't work in LTL is that there was this funding agreement. So the debtors put a lot of money behind this company in an effort to say, hey, we're going to pay everybody. So this is not us trying to use bankruptcy to get out of our debt. This is us saying bankruptcy is the right strategic option, and we're going to resource this company so people all get paid. And so in an effort to, I think, make the bankruptcy process to some degree more fair, it also meant that the company didn't satisfy the requirements of financial distress. So again, could a company with less money available do basically the same thing and still stay in bankruptcy? I think the answer is yes. The funding agreement that LTL had with J&J allowed it payment rights to the tune of $61.5 billion. So those funds could be tapped to satisfy talc liabilities. And analysts aren't predicting that the company will pay out anything near that figure to settle the cases. Why isn't that a good situation for the talc plaintiffs to have it all in one place and to be assured that the money's there to pay them? It's a perfectly good question. And that's the people who support the idea of this bankruptcy are saying, hey, by dismissing this, you're losing so much value because all the money is here. This is not in your best interest. And I think it kind of comes down to what I said earlier, which is to some degree, claimants want different things. And so first I'll say, you know, people are suspicious that a bankruptcy court will be the same as a jury in deciding their claims. And people are very 
hesitant to give up this idea of their day in court, whatever that means for a mass court claimant. So that's thing number one. They don't like that they're being forced to take what would go to a jury and give it to a bankruptcy judge. There's this perception that maybe the claims wouldn't be paid as much. Or perhaps in going through the payment process, I imagine, and again, we didn't get to this point because we never saw the plan in LPL. Everything got dismissed early on. But at some point, usually these cases create a trust and there are procedures that the parties have to go through. It looks very different than filing your own lawsuit and putting on your evidence and going to a jury. So, you know, maybe even if at the end the money is the same, the process isn't quite right. And the parties are very worried that Johnson Johnson says they'll pay all of it, but they'll end up paying less. And really, this idea of holding Johnson Johnson accountable won't be the same in bankruptcy. And I think that's a lot of the concern. So Johnson & Johnson says it's going to challenge the ruling so it can ask for an on-bank hearing before the whole Third Circuit or try to go to the Supreme Court where it hasn't had much luck in the past. An on-bank hearing or the Supreme Court? Judge Ambrose, who wrote the decision, is a very well-respected jurist in the field of bankruptcy. So if anyone on the Third Circuit is going to write a very weighty bankruptcy opinion that will be, you know, respected for the most part, it would be Judge Ambrose. And so there's this perception among bankruptcy types that the courts of appeals in the Supreme Court aren't really in touch with how bankruptcy works on the ground and don't understand the implications of their decisions. I think those criticisms are pretty much silenced in the context of Judge Ambrose because, you know, for a very long time, he's been writing bankruptcy opinions in a way that really reflects an awareness of how the system works and how it should work. And so, you know, again, I don't really have a ton of criticism of this idea that the judges didn't know what they were doing. I think if anyone, Judge Ambrose is the right hand to do this. And we'll get a lot of respect from the en banc third circuit, I imagine. So they may not even take it on bank then. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I don't know enough about the practices in the Third Circuit about how likely they are to take it or not. On the whole, would you say that this decision will have a chilling effect on big companies who think about doing the Texas two-step? In the Third Circuit, definitely. In other circuits, potentially, just because, again, anytime you're sitting down with a potential better to think about options, If the risk is higher that you'll get down the road and your case will get dismissed, then all of a sudden, you know, the the cost benefit weighs a little bit against it. So if I represented a big company right now, I would be concerned about how likely it is to get my case across this threshold that the Third Circuit's created. Because here's the other problem. If, for example, they were to just fund it a little bit less in order to show that the company's in financial distress, then all of a sudden the question becomes, well, was the process of creating this company, was it a fraudulent transfer? Should they get the benefit of bankruptcy that way? And then even further down the line, what most of these companies ultimately want is a non-debtor relief. So in bankruptcy, the debtor often gets the claims against them discharged for, for one reason or another, and that's a normal part of bankruptcy. Another nuance in mass tort cases is that non-debtors, like, for example, the Sacklers in the Purdue Pharma case, or here, Johnson & Johnson in the LTO case, they also want releases. And because they're not debtors, there's a lot of scrutiny on whether or not the litigation claims against these parties that never filed for bankruptcy should be released. And so one of the things courts will look at is whether they've contributed substantial enough amounts to the case to justify that release. And so if businesses don't fund the company they're going to put into bankruptcy, they don't put their money behind it, there's also a risk that they won't get the ultimate thing that they want out of the case, which is to get released. 
What do you think the real world ramifications of this decision will be? Just to follow up on the last point I mentioned on non-data releases, I think to some degree the, the incentive of this opinion will actually go against what most people want. So most people that see this issue that aren't in the bankruptcy world or aren't in the mass tort world will say, how can they force people into bankruptcy? We shouldn't let companies do this. Well, Johnson Johnson put about as much money as any other company I've seen behind these claims. They were saying, I will stand here. I will pay these claims. We will go through this process, but it will end up being better for claimants. That's not acceptable. And so now it's actually pushing companies to put less money behind the claims. And it's going to, I suspect, it's going to push more of them to say, well, we're not going to do this two-step and file. We'll just attach ourselves to another bankruptcy and try to buy the releases. And I don't know if that ends up being better or worse for claimants. Part of me suggests that, you know, unless we fix all of how bankruptcy deals with mass tort cases, we're just going to be pushing companies from one bucket to the other. And I'm not sure that the win is really a win that people think it is. Would you just explain to me how would company attach themselves just an ongoing bankruptcy somewhere? So, again, uh, I'll use the the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma as an example. Now, I'll say in this case, Purdue Pharma is pending before the Second Circuit. So we're waiting on an opinion really any day now about whether this is acceptable. But the Sackler family never filed for bankruptcy at all. But in part of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, they are getting non-debtor releases. So no one will be able to sue the Sacklers for their opioid claims forever. Because the Sacklers put many billions of dollars into the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy. And so basically, they paid their way to get the benefits of bankruptcy without actually filing themselves. And so that model exists. There's plenty of companies that have done it. And so there's no reason to say that if the Sackler Purdue Pharma is allowed to stand, that will just become a more appealing option for a company like Johnson Johnson. So they go to a, a bankruptcy that's somehow related that impacts them. So, you know, again, I'm not going to pine specifically on Johnson Johnson, but usually there are co-defendants in these cases. And if a co-defendant files for bankruptcy and there are similar claims or there's causes of action that are tied together or there's some other link, they can become a non-debtor that resolves their issues in that bankruptcy. It's at least a possibility. Thanks so much, Lindsay. That's Lindsay Simon, a professor at the University of Georgia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.